Hello and welcome to That Science, the podcast exploring the meaning of science today. I'm your host, Amelia Doran, and this is What's Science? I'm incredibly excited for our guest today, who's continuing our discussion of clinical trials and specifically putting more of a focus on inclusivity within clinical trials. I first came across Heidi, a research fellow at the University of Aberdeen, through her former business, Science on a Postcard or Little Science Co. Heidi was one of the first people I saw doing science communication before I really knew what science communication was, and is as close to a SciComm celebrity as there is for me. She works on clinical trial methodologies and encourages increased consideration of diversity and recognising barriers to accessing trials or interventions, trying to make the research and results applicable and available to as many people as possible. Here's what she had to say. Thank you so much for joining us, Heidi. As I said, you're basically the closest thing to a celebrity and you were doing science communication and I started following you doing science communication before I knew what science communication was. And now I'm doing my master's. I have a job interview today to do science communication. So honestly, I'm just so grateful to even get to talk to you. But also, I think you do amazing work in inclusivity and diversity, which is so important. So yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Um, best of luck for the job interview. I hope that goes well. But yeah, that is that is just the most hilarious thing that you could possibly have said to me because <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just bobbing around trying stuff. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. It's very, very kind of you and really looking forward to talking to you. So it's fair to say you've done quite a lot in the science and, and science communication world. So do you want to just start by introducing yourself a bit and what you do at the moment and what you've done? Yeah. So where do I start? Yeah, so I, I'll, start, I'll start with PhD because that, that tends to be the benchmark. So I started my PhD in 2015 at the University of Aberdeen and the whole PhD was around uh, participant recruitment to trials, how we recruit participants, what the evidence is for those interventions that we might use. And spoiler alert, the evidence is pretty weak and if it's there, then we don't tend to use it. <laughs> um, so the sort of end bit of my PhD was a more sort of creative piece where I got to work with some designers and did some user testing around how we present evidence to try and make sure that the trialists that should be using it had a more accessible way of using it. So there was a bit of sort of communication stuff in there. But during my PhD, I was really lucky in that the unit that I worked in, which is the Health Services Research Unit at Aberdeen, you almost become like a member of staff when you're a PhD student. So you're, you're very much just in the unit as everybody else is. And there are other things going on in the unit. Obviously, there's other pieces of research happening. There's statisticians, there's trial managers, um, lots of stuff happening. But one of the groups that is set up there was a public engagement group, um, which was set up by Dr. Heather Morgan when she was based at a health services research unit there. And I thought I should probably do something that's unit wide rather than it just being this like isolated bit of work as a PhD student. I joined that group when it was first set up. And we started just doing like learning together as a, as a group and lots of different people within the unit were there. So it was a way to make friends within the unit. And it was also a way to sort of challenge how I communicated about trials and sort of crystallize the ideas that I had, because I was then communicating with someone that didn't have a clue what I was talking about, which then makes it 700 times more difficult to actually like do the communication thing. But yeah, I started doing that and I just thought it was brilliant, like the way that I could have conversations with people that supposedly didn't know anything about what I did. But that conversation would then change the way I did something or change the way that I thought about something in my research. Um, so I did lots of different events. I did I'm a Scientist, which is an online event that went on over two weeks, I think it was. And you sort of do online chats with school kids and classrooms, which was terrifying and probably the most demanding piece of science communication I've ever done. And then partway through my PhD, I set up my own business because I just figured, like, I'm not busy enough. Let's 
let's add something to the mix. Let's change the flavor of stress that I have today. <laughs> um, but that that business was just kind of like a little creative haven for me when the PhD was getting a bit much. And when, if anybody's ever done or thought about doing a PhD, the, the biggest thing you need is not intelligence, it's tenacity. So it's constantly understanding what the problem is, how to solve the problem. And those problems, they come up just daily or weekly. And you're kind of sitting there going, how, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, this is so hard. <laughs> and how on earth am I going to get to the end of it? And I wanted a quick win in a creative space. And that was what the business gave me. So I could create something and then someone would buy it and I would post it to them. Like that was the quick win. And I was like, oh, wow, this is okay, if I can get the quick wins from there, then I can do the PhD because I'm I'm getting the quick wins somewhere else and the sort of dopamine was coming in from a different angle. So yeah, so I guess all of that to say is science communication was sort of steeped into my upbringing and my like my journey as a researcher. And then I, I ended up closing that business in August last year just because it was kind of too much. So it was too much for me to do. I was getting very stressed and not really having an awful lot of time to myself. Um... And as everyone did during COVID, like a bit of re reflecting and refocusing and stuff. And I sort of thought, right, OK, I need to do one or the other. I need to be doing the business or the research and decided that the research was was more important to me at that point. That's not to say I'll never come back and I'll never do something around that, because you always get the itch at some point of like, mm, what what can I do that's that's a bit weird in my spare time? But yeah, so now I work. You've caught me at a sort of weird, weird bit of my career. So I'm currently finishing up my contract at the University of Aberdeen where I work on inclusive trials. So not necessarily how to recruit, but who to recruit, who to retain, how we can retain those people in, the, in our trials, how we can design trials that they're, so that they are reflective of the people that the intervention stands to benefit the most. And yeah, so I'm, I'm finishing up that contract at the end of May and then I'm starting, first I've got two weeks holiday so I can just lay down and recover from being busy for like five years. <laughs> um, and then uh, I'll be starting as a director of health research equity at Couch Health, which is a sort of, they're, they're a lovely little like much smaller business than a university essentially <laughs> um, with lots of industry collaborators and academic partners and yeah, new challenge, new focus, I think, but definitely still on inclusive trials and how we can make health research applicable and acceptable to as many people as it needs to. Yeah, which is, I mean, incredibly important, right? So we've talked a bit about clinical trials in our last episode, but I guess it's maybe useful to talk a bit about why diversity matters you know it's it's wonderful obviously to see diversity but scientifically it has a really important role as well in the data that's being created yeah definitely so the last episode um which was utterly fantastic by the way like I was listening to it on my dog walk being like this is ace like, I'm actually going to learn some stuff here too Marcia is so cool isn't she oh yeah just casual just dropping in there that you've done John Peel sessions and now what what <laughs> like how are these people so utterly talented but yeah so her episode, she kind of talked about the different phases of trials and, you know, how you go from sort of first in human to phase three and post-marketing and that kind of thing. So the trials that I tend to work across or have influence on or hope to have influence on would be like sort of late stage phase three trials. So the trials when you know that the intervention is safe, you know that the intervention works but you don't necessarily know how it works in lots of people and you don't necessarily know the degree to which it works. Lots of the studies that will be done, particularly in an academic sense, will be one intervention versus another. And in those scenarios, it might be that both of them are approved for use. You know, doctors could 
could actually offer you both of them and it's more just just down to their their own personal preference or their own experience level and so what we want to do then is to figure out which one is potentially like most cost effective for an NHS setting or has the least side effects or that kind of thing that you're sort of getting to a sort of niggly nuance what is the treatment that we need to roll out to everyone and with everyone in mind we need to make sure that all of those interventions work for any of the people that can be treated with them. I guess one of the sort of the main things that I work across or the, the pillars that I work across would be ethnicity, socioeconomic disadvantage and rurality. So being based, I live in Aberdeenshire now, and the rural population, particularly in northeast Scotland, is just spread out over like miles and miles and miles. And the health services that, that we can access can be quite tricky. So sometimes you'll have like a mobile breast screening van that will go to places instead of it being, um, you know, going to a hospital, particularly in the island communities and that kind of stuff. So in terms of inclusivity, we need, and I, I, I will repeat this until like the end of time, but people that stand to benefit from that intervention, that that intervention has been tested within them and has been evaluated within them so that we can understand, is it appropriate for that group? Does it work the same way for everyone? And are they going to accept it when it's offered to them? So it could be something as simple as, Uh, We would really like you to do a bit more exercise. The intervention is going to be a lifestyle change. It's going to be exercise that will get your heart rate above a certain level to try and improve cardiovascular health, say. So what we need to do then is to ensure that people have access to the intervention in a safe, culturally appropriate way. So if you have an exercise-based intervention, but you have a group of participants that are based very rurally in places where weather might be particularly bad, they don't have access to a gym, you know, are they going to be able to then do a run on country roads in the dark in the midst of winter? Probably not. So we need to make sure they can do something potentially home-based. If it's an ethnicity or a cultural thing, it could be maybe we need to understand how we can split interventions by gender because you, there might be some sort of cultural friction there if you don't, if women don't want to work out and have potentially like headdresses taken off, for example, in, in an environment where men are there or other genders are there. So yeah, it's it's just trying to understand what potential barriers could be to that group saying that isn't actually appropriate for us. It could be a drug and the the coating of that capsule has got gelatin in it. And most cultures will say if it's a medicine, then that's kind of all right. Like there's there's different um, degrees of orthodoxy, I guess, but it's some people just just won't want to take it. So we need to understand that before we go in. It's a very easy switch to go, actually, can we have a vegetarian or a vegan version of that gelatin? Yes, we can. Let's do that right at the beginning so that we're not having a situation where everybody can access the drug, but will not take the drug for their own very, you know, personal and totally reasonable reasons. It's it's trying to make sure that healthcare systems work for them rather than us trying to go in and saying, why aren't you taking this and being quite confrontational about it? It's us saying, why wouldn't you take this before we develop it to make sure that it's actually like decent for them? And most health interventions up until this point, we haven't really done that level of thought about things. The nuance hasn't been there. The thoughtfulness hasn't really been there because most of the people that are involved in trials, um, at least in a UK and potentially US setting, are from the white majority rather than the global majority. And so we design things based on what we know. That's human nature. And so we design things based on what we know. We don't see any cultural barriers because we don't have them. And then it gets into NHS services and you go, oh, right, this is screwed that up, didn't we? We've just perpetuated the health inequality that we were attempting to relieve. Brilliant. So, yeah, very, very important. 
and something that is is quite difficult to do because often you get money to do a trial and if you can recruit very fast in that trial then that's really good and you can get your results out and that's all great but the people that are easiest to recruit and you can't see on the podcast but air quotes easiest to recruit are usually white middle class potentially retired they might be able to attend clinic visits during the day They might not have childcare responsibilities, they've got probably no financial worries, that kind of thing. So if we're hitting the easy groups, then they're the ones that will benefit from from the study results. It's trying to to change an entire thought process of a trial team, which is like, okay, that's probably going to be a career length job for me and many, many others um, and people that come after me as well. Yeah, I was having a conversation with one of my friends during Ramadan about medicine that you have to take not on an empty stomach, you know, you have to eat before you take it. And we were talking about that and how that's such a, I mean, as white, especially Christians, like this is not something you'd ever really consider. No, not at all. And it's it's just kind of to a point where you just like, you just don't think about it because it's not your base point. So it's not a thing. I was reading a book recently, Disability Visibility. It's like a essay collection edited by Alice Wong. And one of the essays in there was about Ramadan and how somebody wanted to fast. And it was fine. Their family were totally fine with it because they needed to take medication. It wasn't good for their health to fast, but they personally felt that they wanted to. So it's not only a cultural level decision, it's also a personal decision where you can think, well, yeah, it's actually totally fine in cultural religion to say, you're not going to fast because it's not good for you to do that. But personally, it was important for their faith to do so. And so we need to try and make sure that there's ways that we can do that with people. Like, do they, if you can't take the drug on an empty stomach, can it, can it be delivered in a different way to try and ensure that that is better? Because that person still needs treatment and they still need to manage their condition, but they need to manage their condition based on their own personal feelings in life. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. <laughs> Yeah, I get swept up sometimes because we do health communication as part of our course. I think I get swept up sometimes in the very utopian vision of healthcare. And I think it's it's important to remember that it, it will take a long time, as you say, a long time, a lot of work to get there. Not that it's impossible, but it just, yeah, there's a lot to do in the meantime to get there. Yeah, definitely. And I think we're always learning as well. So even the people that are like experts in health communication will quite routinely come and say like, ah, yeah, we've we've kind of screwed that one up. That's not really the route we were meant to be going down. And so many examples of this during COVID and health inequalities really sort of came to light during COVID. But there was lots of us working on this sort of stuff before COVID going, yeah, if you'd listened to us before, we could have told you, like we could have predicted that COVID was going to have this horrible, unfair impact on marginalised groups before it even happened. We could have we could have predicted that. Um, I went to a workshop a couple of years ago um, with Dr. Adi Adelaine, who was just an utterly fantastic human. Like, if you don't follow her on Twitter, you absolutely should. She's she's wonderful. And her she's got lots of different backgrounds and sort of points of reference. But one of her, I guess, past professionalisms um, is disaster relief and working within sort of disaster zones, you know, natural disasters or trying to manage refugees and people fleeing war and conflict and that kind of thing. Her entire workshop was based on the concept that COVID is, I don't want to say just, but COVID is a disaster, just like a tsunami is or an earthquake is. And we know that in all of those other disaster situations, the worst off in society, and I say worst off in the very broadest of, of senses, whether it's 
you know, sexual minorities, gender minorities, racial minorities, anybody who is at the lowest rung of society in terms of how society treats them, they all stand to suffer even more than they already did when a disaster strikes. So COVID is a natural disaster, global natural disaster. And if the government had said anything to anyone in in any of these fields, it was very obvious in the beginning to say, right, okay, we clearly, something as, as broad as a virus is going to increase exposure with people that are working in customer service jobs, potentially lower paid jobs, lower appreciated jobs, healthcare communities, like all of these, it was all completely watchable from the outset. And when, when COVID was happening, some of the messaging around that, the health communication messaging was just like really off. So the vaccine trials started and there was a couple of MPs that were saying, look, we, we really need um, minoritized ethnicities to be part of these trials because we need to make sure that things work in, in everyone. And, you know, you guys are, are suffering the most and we want to make sure that you're you know, being helped and da da da. And the way that they pitched it was, was from a very sort of white saviour perspective. Like, you know, we want to include you in these trials so that we can save you. And when it actually came across, the perception was we want to test stuff in you before it goes into our privileged bodies. And so that did nothing to build trust. If anything, it eroded any any level of trust that was there already. And you could see health communication professionals going, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> like, don't do that. Don't do that. Come and ask us and we'll we'll tell you not to do that and we'll help you do it better. Um, but it's when health communication messaging is given to somebody who is not trained in a health communication setting, it's so easy for it to go wrong. And you just don't think about it because if you don't know how it can go wrong, you just think, I'm doing, I'm doing something good. So yeah, I'm sure in, in your course, you'll have seen particularly bad examples. <laughs> um, but some some people do do it really well. They really do, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm learning that in the 12 weeks that we're studying health communication, we're barely brushing the surface. Barely. So it's such a complex thing. And especially, as you say, there's so many ways in which the main, you know, white middle class financially stable is just not representative and all of those ways have such an impact down to yeah what what is the tablet coated in I think it's really interesting to think about all the things that we don't think about and that it's really important to think about but also if we can think about that in the beginning as you say then we don't have to you know come later and say oh we need to develop a new medicine that doesn't have gelatin in it because we've already done that we've already considered that so I guess I mean that's the hopeful part of the podcast right so we can talk a bit about the ways in which we can do that how can we bring those kind of diversity considerations in how can we make sure that the recruitment and the retention supports you know this ideal of having a actually representative population in our studies yeah definitely and I think there's definitely hope I keep having really exciting conversations with people where I sort of walk out of the conversation going like, oh my God, we could actually do something really incredible here. And that happens like more than once a week with different people. So there's definitely hope. There's lots of really passionate, excited, hardworking people working to solve these issues. And it's difficult because people like me, so I've never been part of a trial. I've never led a trial. I've never ran a trial. I haven't been a PI. Like none of the things that Marcia from the last episode has done, that's not where I sit. So I sit as a methodologist trying to advise people on what to do. But it's quite difficult when I go into conversations with people and I say, okay, well, at the planning stage, it would be really great if you could do X, Y, Z. And, you know, X might take you a full day. Y might take you two weeks. And then Z might take you another three hours to think about or something. And they go, okay, well, that's great. But I've only got an eight week turnaround until the grant application's due. And I've got everybody else advising me and saying we need to do ABC. 
And so how do I fit in your things? And I know they're important, but how do I fit them in? So it's understandable that not all trials can or do do this like front end planning thing that we always say, plan at the beginning, it'll make your life so much easier. And they're like, well, it'll make my life in six months so much easier, but it won't make my life now so much easier because I'm already stressed and I've got too much to think about. So it's also about trying to work with people throughout the life cycle of their trial, because you know if you don't get the planning right, you can still improve things as you go along. If your participant information sheet is only going to be delivered in written English, maybe we can think about translating it. Maybe we can think about doing pictorial or video versions of that. Maybe we have to go back to the drawing board a little bit around the language that you've used or the way that you framed certain things. So if we frame risk in a certain way, we know that certain communities are more likely to say, that's not my thing. I don't want to be a guinea pig. Like That's always the quote that comes up. I don't want to be tested on. We need to do is work with communities that we want to target and say, how do you view this risk and how should we communicate that? So it's this co-production piece that I know Marcia had mentioned in the last episode as well. So making your co-production and patient and public involvement inclusive as well. So yes, you get your grant money in. Yes, you've done your application. It may not be the most inclusive, but speak to the people that you want involved and engaged with your trial and they will help make it more inclusive, even though you've potentially screwed up at the beginning. (laughs) So yeah, there's so many people just doing really fun, exciting things. So even the the research that we're doing to try and improve recruitment or retention, trying to do that in a creative way. So if we're doing qualitative work and we're doing semi-structured interviews or focus groups, which tend to be how to get rich data and on experiences and perspectives, the usual methods that we would use, maybe we should think about using creative methods to do that instead, to try and get that data to be as rich as it can be, so that we can then inform the trials better, particularly with groups that have lower levels of health literacy. If you ask them a question in a certain way, they can't then answer in the way that you want them to because their baseline of health literacy is lower. So if you say to them, you know, what do you find difficult on a daily basis in terms of your health struggles and your holistic, broad health status, they might just not understand. You can say, maybe I'm in pain, maybe I'm tired, but it's very difficult for people to then make the link between I'm in pain and that means that you want to know that I don't drive anymore or or that I don't go and pick my kids up from school anymore. Stuff like that. We want to know practicalities of it, but it's difficult for people to make that connection themselves because they think you're a health person, you want to know about health stuff. Whereas in fact, it's I want to know about the impact of that health stuff. So I was in a meeting yesterday where we were talking about photo voice. One really powerful example was Walmersley and Johnson, who, if you want to read more about that, they have fantastic books and they sort of pushed the inclusive research movement from a learning disabilities perspective. There was one sort of photo voice example that they gave and it was somebody had taken a photograph of a lock on their kitchen door. And when they were then talking with the interviewers about what that meant to them, what what did that lock on the kitchen door symbolise? It was they couldn't even go into their kitchen to make a cup of tea for themselves. You know, they were in an environment where their support workers or their healthcare professionals or family that were around them, they weren't giving them the agency to say, yeah, you can do that yourself. You're capable of doing that yourself. They wanted to do that. And the people around them, I'm sure, weren't doing it in a malicious way, but it was stopping them from doing something as simple as making a drink for themselves. So in a trials perspective, then we can then look at something like that and say, okay, well, if they can't do that themselves, they're probably not going to have a huge amount of agency in their own decision making around their health interventions that they pick up, the the trial participation that they might want to take part in. So we need to get their family on board. We need to get their, their care and their support team on board. So yeah, the methods that we can use are so broad and that to me is just really exciting. It's like, okay, if we can do something that creatively and that 
you know get something that's so rich and informative for us we then have the information at our fingertips to say this means this in a trial context and let's improve it and some of the things that we can do to improve things are really straightforward quite cheap yes it might involve an amendment to ethics which is a pain for everyone but it's not necessarily going to cost like 20 grand it's not going to break the bank or your budget for the trial or your time it's just going to go okay we need to get the ethics amendment through and then we'll do it and that will tick off a box to say we've removed a very small barrier for a certain group of people and that's good so it's, it's just trying to open up the the trial space to say everyone has an option to take part and if you don't want to take part that is absolutely fine we need to make sure that we've done the most that we can to make them comfortable in that decision so it's not a decision that they're making because it's not really in their hands anymore it's a logistical decision whereas an emotional decision would be that they might stay that kind of thing but i'm just really excited about like the hope of it it's so nice to be able to have hope that these things can change because they will change and they have changed recently and they'll continue to do so because the people that are working in this area are just like properly good people yeah I think it's really nice you know thinking about that and also what we started talking about in terms of you know how can we make sure that the interventions and medicines don't limit someone's ability to do what they want to do both sides of it are essentially saying that health should not be the power that shouldn't be determining what you do you should be determining what you should do and health should be there to support that right on both sides both whether you're engaging in research or you're using the product of research and it is it's, it's flattening the hierarchy of healthcare and research and that is a the sort of phrase was i heard lynn laidlaw say it um a couple of years ago in a meeting. So Lynn Laidlaw is a fantastic patient and public contributor. And now she's leading studies herself and true co-production. She pushes for true co-production with patients and the public. I think the language around patient public involvement and that kind of thing. Welcome, the welcome trust, welcome people. <laughs> uh, the way that they phrase their patient public involvement is fantastic. They call their contributors lived experience experts. So even in the framing of who they are in terms of the role that they're playing in that system of potentially in a meeting or something, they are tagged as an expert as soon as they walk in the door. And I think that is sort of the reframing that we need from a healthcare perspective to say they're the expert on their condition, their life, their point of reference. And if we're trying to improve that for them, the only point that we need is them. We need to listen to them and truly hear them to say, actually, that's not, it doesn't even fit with what we thought this condition was or what we thought that experience was. So we need them in the room at all times. So we need them at the design stage when everything is busy and frantic. We need them in the development stage when everything is busy and frantic. And we need them in every stage throughout that trial, even just saying, you know, someone's dropped out. Can you have a look at this and figure out why they might have dropped out? And they need to be involved in the development of the research question. You know, is the question important to somebody with this condition? No. Then why are we doing the trial? Right towards dissemination where you go, okay, who needs the results of this trial? The first people should be the people that were in the trial. And that is not something that happens routinely around the world. Often the people that are involved in the trial never hear what the results were. Were they in the placebo group or not? What happened? You know, what should they be looking out for in terms of their own health? Should they, particularly if it's like an an expensive drug as well. I'm talking more more really about like the US setting where they've got health insurance to think about or industry setting where they might be testing a drug that's particularly expensive but it's not yet available in the NHS. Do you have stuff in place to say if this drug works because you took part in the trial you can then access that drug afterwards, even if the NHS doesn't fund it. And having those lived experience contributors are sort of the people that are, they're challenging us and saying, like, that's not right. Why are you doing that? And making sure that those people are inclusive just means that we get various voices and various people to say, that isn't right for me. 
or that isn't right for them or that, you know, whoever else. It's listening to them throughout the whole process and saying, okay, right, what have we got wrong? What have we got right? And how can we deal with this? So yeah, that, that power imbalance is really, yeah, it's something to definitely, definitely keep in mind as you go through a research space. But one of the sort of lived experience contributors that I've worked with in the past said that COVID has been a really good leveler in terms of that power dynamic, because often if you dial into like a Zoom meeting or a Teams meeting, people don't have their title. They don't have like doctor or professor and people are at home. So they're going to look a bit weird if they're sat in like a shirt and tie. So they're in soft clothing. That was the, the phrase that he used. They're in soft clothing. So you're then in an environment where you're sat on Zoom and someone is called John or Steve or whatever else. And they're sat in a hoodie instead of being professor, someone in a suit. And that even just the first view of that person then makes, okay, you know, we're, we are actually all valued in this team. There's no real difference between us. And yeah, there's hurdles in terms of doing meetings and stuff online for different groups, but trying to carry that into the work that we're doing now, even if you're not doing it online, I very rarely, in fact, unless I'm sort of trying to nag my boyfriend or my mum, I won't introduce myself as doctor. Because it's just like, who needs to know that? But yeah, it's having those discussions and making the working environment fun and enjoyable for everyone makes the work better as well. So we enjoy it. The work is strengthened. What's not to, what's not to love? Done. Finished. Exactly. Smashed it. We're done. <laughs> Mic drop, you know. No, yeah. I think it's incredible. I everything that you do is incredible to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's ridiculous. Amelia, be cool. <laughs> but no, I think so I want to go into informal science learning and there's a lot of the same stuff happening in that zone in terms of there's a lot of things that we that people don't realise. The eight, there's scholars that try and move away from the idea of barriers, but there's a lot of ways that it becomes unwelcoming. And, you know, how can we use co-participation? How can we, how can we understand what we're doing wrong when we feel like we're just trying to make exciting things? Yeah. I think that whole idea is fascinating and it's, it's incredible to see it being reflected in such an important part, you know, something that impacts everyone's everyday lives you've got to have that inclusion there yeah and I think that welcoming communication as well it's trying to make it less about what we want to tell people and more about what they want to know so if we're going out, like I did soapbox science a couple of years ago, I was on the mound in Edinburgh on a on a wooden box walking to strangers in the street. And I went with a sort of agenda of, okay, I want to tell people about the importance of trials and how it's something that you can get involved in and potentially find community from if you wanted to, like lots of different pluses to take part in trials. And I remember I had someone come over to me and said, well, yeah, but I, I just don't want to. Like I've, I've got loads of other things on my plate. I would rather just do jury duty. Like that's that's my contribution to society. It's much easier, more straightforward. Don't need to think about it. Great. So it's trying to figure out what do you need to know? Is there a way that that person could have taken part in a trial that was maybe digital, that they had an app on their phone and all they did was tick a box once a day to tell us how they felt and trying to match the trial to the patient based on what that patient wants. And it's so easy for us to say, these are the things that the public need to know. This is our perception of what their health literacy needs to be. And so for us, when we're pushing shared decision making and, you know, come and ask us questions and they go, I I don't have anything. I don't want to. For us, it's saying, okay, that's absolutely fine. What can we do to make information accessible when you do need or want it? And how can we do that for you? Do Do you want it in a podcast? Do you want it in a comic in the back of your newspaper? Like, how do you want that? Shall we be pushing for 
a trial participant in EastEnders to try and get it on the public agenda. Like very not necessarily standard ways of doing health communication where we just plant a seed in someone's head to say, this is an option for you. Might not be for you now, but it might be an option for you at some point in your life. And this is where you would get information about it if you want that. And, you know, you tell us what information you want. Do you want to know what the potential risks are? Do you want to know what the potential benefits are? Do you want to know if this could affect your fertility going forward? Do you want to know if it could affect how tired you are in the morning and then you're trying to get ready for work and sometimes that's then not possible like what frame of their lives do they definitely not want to impact and definitely do want to impact and how do we then tailor information so that they understand what any of those risks or benefits are and yeah again it's that flattening the hierarchy and reducing the power imbalance to say we have no idea what you want so please tell us instead of us saying this is this is what you should want and this is what you should know like who are we to say that How arrogant for us to even assume that we know what people want or should want because it's their lives and their decision and we're asking them to do us a favour at the end of the day. And lots of academic trials particularly, we can't pay people to take part. And in some cases, that's a good thing. In some cases, it's a very bad thing. There's lots of different pros and cons for that. But for me, I think if we're not even covering like travel expenses, coffee at the appointment, parking tickets, potentially half a day off work, we can at least do that. We, we need to at least make sure that trial participants are not out of pocket. I was actually for a job application introduced to the term culturally democratic. And I guess that's the draw of it, right? That everything, all of these interventions that you can do make these kind of trials and the, the medications and the results that you get from it democratic in the in the kind of broader sense of just it's serving the people. It's not serving our sort of healthcare science agendas. It's serving the people that are going to be using it. Yeah, absolutely. And we're often in an academic sense and, you know, my frame of reference will probably change slightly when I move to my new job, but in an academic sense... The funding that we get is taxpayers' money. You know, we're funded by public bodies, the Chief Scientist Office in Scotland, the National Institute for Health and Care Research, the Medical Research Council. All of those are funded by taxpayers' money. Why are we doing stuff as if we're not being funded by a taxpayer? You know, like we are doing a service for the people who are paying us. So my salary is paid by the taxpayer. So I then have a duty and I take that duty quite seriously in that like I should be doing public engagement because they should be in a position where if they want to know what I'm doing, it's there for them. If they don't want to know what I'm doing, that is absolutely fine. But as a researcher being paid by them, there should be some way of them saying, actually, what is that? What's the outcome of that project? And how did you do it? And is there a method for me to feed back and say, I don't think you should have done it that way. And I think those conversations are so exciting as well. Like some researchers try and avoid them where someone's challenging them too much and saying like, you know, this shouldn't have been the outcome or this shouldn't have been the population groups that you chose or your eligibility criteria were too tight. And for me, it's like, yeah, actually do challenge me on that because what do I do in the next study? I don't want to make that same mistake twice. I love it when you get a really challenging person that comes to you and they're like, you can see how full of fire they are. And then they say something and you're like, oh my God, yeah, you're right. And then the whole system sort of like fizzles a little bit. And then you start to build the fire back up together where you're like, yes, I did make that mistake. Tell me how I can fix it. Do you want to come and be part of my patient panel for the next project and like be part of it? And then they go, oh my God, really? I didn't know I could do that. Like, yes, yes. You're the voice we need. You're the one that we need. Yeah, we have we have so much scope for hope and change and 
making healthcare what it really should be um, because at the moment it's it's not really working for many of the people that are involved in it whether it's the staff deeply you know overworked underpaid how can we find efficiencies in that system that are based on doing things the right way for everyone and I think that's kind of the only way that I can see things changing. Obviously, we would love for the NHS to be effectively funded, but we also need to make sure that they're not wasting money on interventions that don't work, that are costly and don't need to be, that are giving patients awful side effects that they don't want, etc., etc., etc. So if I can play a part in that as well, that's a really satisfying piece of the puzzle, I think. Let's try and improve things for everyone. I think your positivity and your passion for it really comes through. Thank you so much to Heidi for agreeing to interview with me. I think the research that you do is incredible and I can't wait to see what you do next at Couch. I also want to apologise for the amount of gushing that I did in this episode to both you and most of my friends, but I was incredibly honoured to get to talk to you, as I said, as close to a celebrity as there's going to be for me. If you want to see more of Heidi, her Twitter and blog are linked in the show notes alongside some other Twitter links to the people we've discussed and some resources if you want to explore anything further. For now, please make sure that you're following us on Instagram and Twitter, which we're going to try and make a comeback on, at, at that science pod. Make sure you tune in next week for Susan's episode of Is That Science? Thanks for listening.